I'd like to begin by introducing myself. There's a my family and I have been around here about eight years, but there's a lot of a lot of new people, and I haven't really got to know everybody. There's been so many new people coming in. But my name is Keith Lippy. My wife Michelle and I have been attending Living Hope for eight years. I have served in various capacities here over the years. Currently, I serve on the rotation teaching in the fourth to sixth grade Sunday school class, and I have a blast teaching some of your kids, and I hope they are learning something. <laughs> um, Michelle and I have six wonderful children. You got a picture up there. I hope you can see a little bit. Um, I have six children, two sons-in-law, one daughter-in-law, one granddaughter. From left to right in the picture there is, in the front row, is Sarah, then Julie, who is now Julie Delp, and her husband Josh, and they have our first granddaughter, whose name is Haley. Then there, then you, my wife Michelle, myself, and my second daughter, Jessica, who recently got married to Jonathan. Go to the top row from the left is Jonathan, and then Caleb, and then Joseph. And Joseph is married to Phoebe, who was formerly Phoebe Leorovich, now Phoebe Lippi. So that, that picture is a little bit dated. Most of the boys have some form of facial hair right now, so they look a little different. The next picture I want to show you is 2004. Okay, when our oldest daughter, Julie, was 10, and the youngest, John, was in diapers. At that time, our family set out on a great adventure. We moved to West Africa and served as missionaries. We served for, as missionaries for 15 years, the majority of the time in the country of the Gambia. The picture you see there was our first time at a village luma, or a village market, near the rural village of Adungukebe, which we lived in. You can see a few things from that picture. It was hot, and we were definitely in the minority. All right, when we first landed in the Gambia, West Africa, in 2004, we lived and worked with a mission team that had comprised about 20 people. This included several families and several single women missionaries. The village of Dungukebe, like most of the rural Gambia, was virtually all Muslim. The society was extremely tightly knit together. Most of the Muslim men had several wives and many children. In a small village like Dungukebe, this means that almost everybody was related to everybody. People in the Gambia do not deviate from the norms of their society which is basically their extended family. Almost everyone is a Muslim, and it has been that way for hundreds of years. Reaching people for Jesus Christ in this environment was very challenging. Our mission had established a name for itself in the region by serving the needs of these people through a health care center and a literacy ministry. So the people were tolerant of the message that we were trying to convey. Many would listen to what we had to say about the Bible, but seeing someone actually convert from Islam to Christianity was unusual. 
About the time our family arrived on the field, several of the men on our team had been working with three Muslim men. Eventually, all three of these men professed faith in Christ and were baptized. So months later, we received the news that two of the three had renounced their faith in Christ and had returned to the practice of Islam. By general definition, these two men would be described as apostates. They had defected from their newfound faith in Jesus Christ and reverted back to the religion of Islam. They completely abandoned their Christian testimony never to return. The third man did not defect, but continued to meet with missionaries and eventually even did some preaching. But at various times in his journey of faith, he suffered pretty serious setbacks, breaking fellowship at times with his fellow believers. You can go ahead and jump to the next picture there, Susan. But he never departed from his Christian testimony. Okay, this is what we would call backsliding. Okay, backsliding is a term for a temporary disruption in the progress of growth in the Christian life. Okay, now for the last example. Okay, now these are all true stories. A man who later became a friend of mine also came to faith in Christ about the time our family landed on the field in the Gambia. He was also a Muslim. A woman who was working on the Mercy Ship. Okay, the Mercy Ship was a floating hospital that would travel to ports. Many of you have heard of it. Travels to ports and offers medical surgeries and care that people otherwise would not be able to get or especially couldn't afford. Um, this lady came on, the, on that ship and she went around and did, went to villages and shared Bible stories with children. Okay? So she came to the, my friend's village. The village was called Sambachaji. And she hired my friend to be her translator. And she went around and she taught Bible stories in some villages and he interpreted for her. Okay, when the, when the time there ended, she left my, this friend of mine a Bible. Since he was able to read English, and even though he was a Muslim, he, his interest had been piqued from the stories that he had heard. He began to read in the book of Genesis and was immediately taken by the detail of the account of creation. From all his education in the Quran, he had never heard such details about how God created the world. He also began to notice that the account in the Bible was somewhat different than the accounts that had been taught to him by the imams, the ustas, and the Quranic teachers. Okay? Finally, he got to the account of the call of Abraham. There he saw that the Bible taught that Isaac was the one that Abraham took up the mountain to offer to God, not Ishmael, as the Quranic teachers had told him. Eventually, he came to understand that the ram that took Isaac's place on the altar pointed ahead in time to Jesus Christ who was, as John described in the New Testament, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what happened to him in his village after he placed his faith in Jesus Christ and God began to change his life. Okay, this is a quote from his testimony. He said, I was the person who gave the call to prayer at the mosque and the secretary of the mosque society. So when I stopped attending the mosque, 
it was obvious to everyone that something had happened. But they asked me why. I told them I had realized that Muhammad could not save me, but that I found my Savior, and it was Jesus. So they began persecuting me, taking me to Quranic courts in various villages, taking away my wife and children, and my family disowned me. Okay, my friend, after that, he moved to the capital, and he stayed there for a couple years. He continued in his faith in Christ, and even went out to the westernmost part of the Gambia, and he tried to gather believers there. We met up with him again in our later years on the field after we began praying as a team for God to raise up leaders to lead the future church in the Gambia. About that time, he decided to move back to his home village, believing God was calling him to reach his own people. Of course, like the previous time, his reception in the village was not a cordial one. But being the owner of a family compound and a native of that village, there was nothing else that the village could take away from him. He is still ostracized by his village, but has gathered together a small group of believers there. He continues to work there. Okay, these stories parallel the situation that surrounded the new first century Jewish believers that were the recipients of the book or the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, these were former Jews steeped in a long tradition of Judaism who heard the gospel and professed faith in Jesus Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews is encouraging them to continue on in their newfound faith. He is warning them not to return to their old ways, not to return to the Old Testament law or the sacrifices or the Jewish priesthood. He is telling them that by leaving Judaism and following Jesus Christ, they have a better covenant, a better mediator, a better hope for the future, better promises, better homeland, a better priesthood, and better possessions than their old religion can offer. Just like our Muslim friends in the Gambia, it would be much easier for them to return to their old friends and family who were still practicing Judaism than to suffer the persecution that would accompany standing strong as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, imagine yourself living in an environment like these first century Jews or our friends in the Gambia. Someone comes along preaching the good news of Christ. They tell you that he came to pay the penalty for your sins. You hear them saying that you cannot be forgiven the way you thought you could. For the Jewish believers, it was by offering bulls and goats and lambs at the, offer, at the, off, excuse me, at the altar and the temple and by keeping the laws of Moses. For our Muslim friends in the Gambia, it was by praying five times a day, keeping the fasted Ramadan, and giving alms to those in need. You hear that solely because of the grace of God, you can be forgiven. But only one way, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are strangely drawn to the message. You want to hear more. So you begin to gather with a group of, with a few people, and listen to someone teach the Bible. But every day when you leave the Bible study, you are met by your family, your friends, by people who do not want anything to do with this new message. They mock you. They tell you to come back to what you have always done and believed. 
How can it be wrong when generations of our ancestors followed this religion, they say. Eventually, you have trouble buying your vegetables in the market because everyone in this tight-knit society is talking about you. This is what it was like for these new believers to try to follow Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews is encouraging the Jewish Christians to keep going in the journey of faith, to keep going until they reach maturity. He is exhorting them not to shrink back or to fall away. He is warning them about the danger of apostasy. He's telling them to strive for peace with everyone and to make every effort to pursue holiness so that they don't backslide. He gives them a solemn warning. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Okay, in our study of Hebrews here at Living Hope, we're now entering the last chapter of the book. The writer has laid down 11 chapters of doctrine intermingled with warnings and exhortations. He's explained to these new Christians the position that they hold through faith in Christ. Chapter 12 began with the word, therefore, which begins a portion of the book that contains the practical application of everything that they have been taught. As we enter chapter 13 today, we are going to receive some more practical instructions on what a Christian's testimony, what a testimony of faith should look like. So here, you and I are in semi-suburban America. We're in the 21st century, not the 1st century. I don't think any of us are in danger of returning to Judaism or Islam. How does what we are going to learn from Hebrews 13 apply to us? Well, returning to Judaism or Islam may not be something that is pulling us away from God, but what about materialism? What about secularism, sensuality, humanism? What about the constant onslaught of, immor- constant onslaught of immorality that we are fed by our modern cultures through media and our smartphones? The sin that clings so closely, that easily besets us, is always lurking around the corner, and it has a lot of forms. The same adversary, Satan, is still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And there's another thing that's similar. The letter of the Hebrews was written sometime around 65 AD. Around this time, the Roman emperor Nero had begun to persecute Christians. A fire swept through Rome, and Nero blamed the Christians. They were rounded up, arrested, thrown to wild beasts, and crucified. We don't know what the situation will be like for Christians here in America in the not-so-distant future. We must draw close to Christ now while we still have the opportunity for ourselves, our families, and those around us who we have a chance to influence. The writer of Hebrews kept pointing his readers to the example of Christ. He wrote, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In Hebrews 13, the writer is instructing believers in Christ to stay strong in their testimony of faith. And that's what he's saying to us. Stay strong in your testimony of faith. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look at the first eight verses. I'm going to read Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 8. Let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this warning and motivation and encouragement you've given us through the book of Hebrews. Lord, help us to apply it to ourselves and help us to stand, Lord, in this evil age. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to start in the first three verses there. The first thing we're going to see is a testimony to our faith in Jesus Christ is exhibiting brotherly love. Okay? We're going to see a parallel passage there. It's in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Okay, the first thing we're going to see there is that love for one another can be a revealer of our true identity. Anyone who loves knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Okay? And we go on in that verse in 1 John, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Okay, so we see love for one another could be a revealer of our true identity. And we say love for another, one another, is so, supposed to be demonstrated. Okay? The Bible tells us not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Okay? We're to love our fellow Christians. We're supposed to love our fellow church members. And I think we can apply it, as we see in, this, in a minute here, with strangers to those 
even those around us who do not know Christ. Okay? In that verse, it says, let brotherly love continue in Hebrews. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Okay, we, show our, we can demonstrate our love by hospitality. Okay, I think this is a reference to Genesis 18. We have Abraham and Sarah, and three men came. One was God, two were angels, and they showed them hospitality. They fed them. Okay, then Abraham interceded on behalf of Lot, who was in Sodom at the time, and these angels rescued Lot and his family from destruction in Sodom. Okay? We show hospitality. I think it's pointing us to the picture that when we show hospitality and love one another, it, sometimes the benefit can come back to ourselves. Okay? I don't know. I don't know that I've ever entertained angels, but in that instance, Abraham did. Okay, strangers in this context, okay, it goes on to say, show hospitality to strangers, okay? Probably in this context, context, it's talking about people who are fleeing from persecution. Okay, we had Nero in Rome, we had Christians in the, in the last chapter, or the last verse of this chapter, it talks about sending people from, it says, um, those who come from Italy send you greetings, okay? So there's a good chance there was refugees, Coming, around, coming into their fellowship, and they were to show hospitality to them. Um, our love for one another should also include reaching out to our unsaved friends and neighbors. Okay, by entertaining people in gospel conversations and interceding for them, we can also be an instrument like Abraham was for Lot, in God's work of saving them from destruction. Okay, so he says, the writer of Hebrews is assuming that they were already exercising brotherly love. He said, let brotherly love continue. Okay, so an exhortation for us is to continue in brotherly love. This is an area that the devil can trip us up. Okay, we're not showing love, we get isolated, we have problems, interpersonal relationships with people. They're all areas that can cause us to backslide. We're supposed to keep pushing ourselves and, and uh, holding each other accountable in the area of brotherly love. Okay? We have accountability groups here that meet, and it's an awesome way to keep yourself accountable okay? in this area of brotherly love. Okay, we also see love for one another is costly. Okay, back in the first John ver- verse, where it, or that God demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans five eight says, um, "Love for one another is costly." Okay, love loving somebody will cost you something. Um, I can't help but think. This writing in the book of Hebrews was not too far away from maybe 20 or 30 years from, from when Jesus walked the earth and the, and the apostles, the disciples were with him, okay? The apostle Peter failed in this area, 
Okay, we'll take an example from Peter, okay? Um, he was there, he watched as Jesus was imprisoned by the temple guards. They were mocking him, they were striking him, mistreating him. Peter chose to take the route of self-preservation by denying that he knew his brother and leader. He denied him three times instead of choosing the option, the other option, which could have been brotherly love. But that would have been costly. He could have chosen to be imprisoned with Jesus. This would have shown brotherly love. Brotherly love can be hard. It was hard for Peter. It can be hard for us. Like gently confronting someone in the church you see living in sin. Not an easy thing to do, but it is love. You hear about tough love. Sometimes love can be tough. Or reaching out to someone who has dropped off and coming to church. Okay? You see backsliding taking place. It's not a safe place to be. Those who are, those who, who are noticing and look, we need, to, we need to reach out to people like that. This is a vital ministry in the church. James said, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think the writer of Hebrews is addressing this specific trait for us because he knows that it is a sin that can cause us to backslide. Peter is an example of backsliding. His spiritual growth was disrupted due to fear and self-preservation. But he repented and became a force in the explosive growth of the early church, as seen in the book of Acts. So I want you to ask yourself this question, how is your testimony in the area of brotherly love? Okay, we'll go to number two there, and we're going to see a testimony to our faith in Christ is showing respect for marriage. Ooh, here's another one, a great area where Satan does some of his greatest work in running havoc through the church. Okay, we'll go to the first parallel verse there. It says, so God, we're talking about marriage. So God created man in his own image, the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we'll go to the next one. As therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Okay, so in those verses, we see the definition of marriage. Okay, what is marriage? Marriage is defined by God. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is a man and a woman becoming one flesh without shame. And marriage is for life. Okay? Our writer of Hebrews Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. In order to do that, we need to understand the definition of marriage. Because is it not under attack now in our society? We're now in the minority, people who understand what marriage is. Okay? The, The Marriage should be held in honor because it was instituted by God. God instituted marriage. It's a gift from God. It is a picture of Christ and the church. 
Even secular research consistently shows that lifelong marriage promotes happiness, well-being, and long life. Marriage should be held in honor because it is a covenant relationship. I had the opportunity to officiate my daughter Jessica and her husband John's wedding, and they said their vows, and actually, I, it was my first wedding, I actually messed it up a little bit, I had him put the ring on before I, they said the vows, but I think it's God still counted it, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, in the vows, each party says, promises, do you love, to love and do it, cherish your partner, and, you, and each, each party says, I do. Okay, I don't know if there's weddings like this, but you don't usually hear somebody say, I do if you do this. No, they don't say that in weddings. Each person unconditionally commits to the other person. Okay, that's a picture of a covenant after the Abrahamic covenant where God unconditionally promised that he was going to bless Abraham. Okay? So marriage is a picture, it's a covenant relationship. All right. In our verse there, it says, let marriage be held in honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Ooh, now we get into... It seems like every time I preach, I end up with some real tough subject. But anyway, the last time I think it was hell, but this time it's... Okay, how can the marriage bed be defiled? Okay, fornication. Big word for sex without the commitment of marriage. Be sex before marriage. Um... Sexual impurity outside the bond of marriage. Out when with, yeah. Okay, we get adultery. How can a marriage bed be defiled? Adultery, okay? Physical relations with someone who's not your wife. When you have a wife or a husband, that's outside of that bond of marriage. Okay, marriage can be defiled by any redefinition of marriage. Okay, well, Wow, the definition of marriage is completely screwed up in our society. There is no definition. Soon there will be no definition. It'll be anything you possibly want to imagine. It's almost there now. Okay. And it says, For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay. I can't help but see the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah bleeding over into this passage about marriage. Okay, God judged the immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah in the past. Okay, back in the book of Genesis, he is judging immorality and sexual dysfunction in our world today as we read Romans 1, and he surely will judge those who continue in the habitual unrepentant sin of sexual impurity in eternity. That is a warning. Okay? How is your testimony in the area of sexual immorality? Are you backsliding? If so, turn around now. Do whatever is necessary to repent before your time runs out. What's at stake? Your Christian testimony. Your happiness if you're not married. Your happiness in the future marriage is at stake. The 
what the uh, testimony and the, what you pass on to your children or your future children is at stake. Ultimately, it could even take you down a road where the reality is you were never saved in the first place. Okay? So if you're backsliding in that area, and believe me, I don't know too many men who haven't been there, me included, but the point is turn around, repent, do whatever's necessary to turn that around and get on the right track. Because anywhere else is a danger zone. Okay. Okay. Number three, a testimony to our faith in Christ is a correct attitude toward wealth. Okay, we'll look at verses five and six there. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Okay, we got a parallel verse up there coming up here. Okay, First John 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Love for the world competes with love for God. Okay, the Bible says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot love God and mammon. We should hold on to our possessions loosely. They are passing away. You can lose them. Okay, the Bible says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, you know, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Okay, another area where Satan does some really good work in messing up Christians' testimonies. Okay, the area of money. Um, Jim Elliot, very overused quote, I guess, but Jim Elliot said, "He is no fool who gives what he can, gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." Okay. Going back to our Hebrews writer, not far removed from the time of the disciples, Judas Iscariot fell in this area. He betrayed the Lord Jesus with whom he spent three years in discipleship. Okay, you think people can't sit in church for 20 years and, and think then you realize, and not be Christians? Okay, Judas was in intimate fellowship with Jesus for three years. His love for 30 pieces of silver overtook his love for his teacher and rabbi. Judas felt worldly sorrow but failed to repent and continue following Jesus. Instead, he took his own life. Okay, opposite of Peter. Peter backslid, but he came back. Judas did not. He was called the son of perdition. This means man doomed for destruction. Judas was an apostate. In his 
case, his backsliding, and we're assuming that his betrayal didn't, it just didn't all of a sudden happen in one event. Usually, a major sin is a, is a combination of a months or years of getting away from God, okay? We can assume that, okay? In his case, backsliding involving the sin of loving money carried him to apostasy. This is another reason that these warnings in the book of Hebrews are so crucial for us. Don't sit passively by in church and ignore the warnings about your sinful habits. It is easy to do, but don't do it. Wake up, turn your life over to God, and get help from someone, no matter what it takes. Okay, you watch the NFL these days and all the gambling. That is gonna, that's another thing that these just grab people into addiction. The devil wants to, in the least, ruin your Christian testimony. The worst, maybe it reveals you weren't a child of God in the beginning. Okay? Humbling yourself before people who love you now is much better than ending up in hell. How is your testimony in the area of money and possessions? Do they possess you or do you possess them? If you're backsliding in this area, repent before it leads you farther than you want to go. Okay, number four. A testimony to our faith in Christ is following the example of godly leaders. Verse seven says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay, people who model character and godliness through their words and actions, these are the people you need to follow. Spending all your time with friends who model the opposite will pull you down and lead you away from a testimony of faith. Most of us have been there at some point in our life, probably. Okay, going on to the last one, number five. Okay, a lot of serious warnings, a lot of hopefully things that we should all be convicted about and want to push ourselves to follow in Christ. But the good news is our testimony is secured by the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Christian life is a race. It's a race in which we are up against an adversary. The adversary is Satan. His ultimate goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus Christ's goal for our lives is that we have life and have it more abundantly. John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I forgot to mention, just hit me now, there was a picture of a snake up there. Did, did that come up earlier in the, in the thing? <laughs> that really didn't have anything to do with the message. I just saw it when I was looking at the pictures, and it was pretty cool. I thought some of the kids would like to see it. There actually were snakes in the Gambia, and there were poisonous ones. That's a bidding cobra right there. It was in her backyard. But actually, it does fit in, because it's a symbol of our adversary. Okay. All right, we can go back. Sorry about that. Paul tells us that we are to run the race to win. God, through the work of Jesus Christ and the provision of his helper, the Holy Spirit, has provided everything we need to win our race. 
But these provisions do not come automatically. Paul also tells us we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In light of all that God has provided for us to win our race of faith, we are to strive to make the most of those provisions as we follow Christ and seek to fulfill the purpose which he has for our lives. Okay, don't get me wrong. Paul does not say work for your salvation. That is not possible. Jesus already did everything necessary to save us by paying the penalty for our sins and rising from the dead to conquer sin and death. Okay, he already did it. What God expects from us once we profess faith in Christ is that we learn from God's word how we are supposed to live and then put all our energy into living out what he commands. Okay, the only reason that we are even capable of doing this is because Jesus Christ has defeated sin, Satan, death, and the grave and assured us that we too can have victory. The only way we can fail is if we sit by passively and allow the world, sin, and the devil to overcome us. Jesus Christ's person and work on the cross of Calvary has given us the power to win the battle. Okay, we're to put off the old nature, put on the new nature. The battle is already won. The only way we lose is if we give up the fight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. His character never changes. His promises never change. He was always God. He's God right now. He always will be God. Jesus Christ judged Judas Iscariot for his apostasy. He accepted the repentance of the backslider Peter. And he will fulfill every promise that he has ever made to those who love and serve him. Okay, if you're sitting here, worship team, you can come on up. If you're sitting on the fence in your Christian life, professing faith in Christ, maybe attending church, if your heart's not really in it, that is not a safe place to be. Okay? We're not trying to question anybody's salvation, but it is not a safe place to be. Little by little, Satan will continue to pull you in a direction that you do not want to go. This describes you. Pray you will come this morning. Pray with one of our elders. Learn how to begin to run the race of the Christian life the way it's meant to be lived. Maybe you're here today, you're listening on the, on the uh, web, and you have never even entered the race of the Christian life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The beginning of the race begins by admitting your need for a Savior, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That describes you. Please come talk to me or one of the elders. If you're listening on the on the web, please call us or some see us at Living Hope Church. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the provisions that you've made and you've already sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sin. You have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to put into practice all the provisions that you've given us and run across the finish line in this race called the Christian life. We love you and praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name.